about hypercriticism and Jesus's words on judgment, that we are to um, forget our hypercriticism of one another, to get the, the log out of our own eye before we judge another, but we are to not get rid of wise discernment altogether. So we pick up in chapter 7, in verse 7, with ask and it will be given to you. This particular section in many ways serves as a little bit of a bookend for Jesus. He will give his final warnings, but this kind of wraps up the new teachings from, uh, if you remember, back in the fall, way back when we covered Matthew 5, 17, in which Jesus says, do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then what do we hear today? For this is the law and the prophets. This section, in many ways, bookends Jesus's sermon, and then he will conclude it with his warnings and his suggestions on living life faithfully. As a reminder, we keep these three things in mind as we are walking through the Sermon on the Mount. First, that the sermon is not an isolated speech. This is to say that the sermon is Jesus explaining the actions of his life and the actions of his life explain the sermon, that the two go together. Second, that the whole sermon is Christ describing what life in his kingdom and what allegiance to him looks like. And then third, obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. This is to say our teacher is a first century Jewish rabbi and we are 21st century American Christians, that there is a little bit of translation, creativity, and imagination that goes into taking the words of our rabbi and bringing it into our modern day life. Obedience to the Sermon on the Mount is a practice in imagination. But if I can confess a little bit, despite my encouragement to each of you week after week to have imagination, I am often racked with doubt. I don't know if you've ever heard a pastor say, I have doubts, but I have doubts. That like each of us, there are moments late at night or moments in a trial where I just go, is this it? Is this real? Have I staked my life on the right thing? I can guess that I'm not alone in this. I could guess that I am not the only one with that nagging doubt that sometimes creeps into the life of faith. And when I look at the grand promises of this book and Jesus' specific descriptions of life in the kingdom, it could be easy to say that Jesus just got it wrong. It could be easy to look at the description of the kingdom of God and say Jesus just missed it. Because oftentimes, our life and our world seem incongruent with the promises of Scripture. There are bad things happening everywhere. Here's just a few. Ukraine is still suffering under Roman occupation. 
Gas prices cost as much as my car, so that's fun. Uh, COVID is still a thing. I know, you know, we're, we're kind of moving about, but COVID is still out there. Our world is continuing to warm and become increasingly hospitable. Will Smith is getting bad press, and that's just a travesty uh, because he's still my fresh prince. Uh, and then the Chiefs traded Tyreek Hill. Where is God in the midst of all this? It's a sad time to be a Kansas Cityan or a Will Smith fan. Things are tough. And oftentimes it's easy to look at the word and look at our world around us and go, I don't know. I don't know. I don't have a magic bullet solution for you. But if I can offer you an idea, it probably won't ease the tension, but it might offer some hope. If you would, jump with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. If you remember back to September, um, our very first Sunday as a church, we opened up with this text in Matthew 4, 17. Matthew writes, from this time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The moment in which these words are first spoken is fraught with political, cultural, and economic tension. Jesus and his fellow countrymen, those who he is giving this sermon to, were an occupied and oppressed people. They were living on their ancestral homeland, but were beginning to lose the land, becoming debt slaves due to Roman taxation, which could be anywhere from 60 to 80% of one's income. We just paid our uh, federal income, and let me tell you, that stung. But can you imagine 60 to 80% of your income going to a government you are oppressed by? If that wasn't enough, it is likely that in the midst of Jesus' proclamation of this sermon, that squadrons of Roman soldiers paraded through the countryside as a constant reminder of who was in charge. Jesus steps into this moment, which was a powder keg of a moment, a powder keg of religious, political, cultural, and economic turmoil. I hope that sounds familiar, because there's something to be said about the moment we exist in and the moment Jesus exists in. For all of these reasons, the announcement that Jesus gives, that the kingdom of God is at hand, is electric. In the minds of these Jewish people, this proclamation explodes in their imagination, bringing to mind the prophecies of Isaiah and Ezekiel, of Jeremiah, of a coming king that will set all things right. Remember how Jesus defines the kingdom of God. We've talked about this a lot, but I'll keep reminding you because it is the center of Jesus's message. Your kingdom come and your will be done. The kingdom of God is the space in which God's will is done and accomplished. The garden of Eden was the perfect expression of that, and we look towards the day in which that expression 
will be done again. If we look further in chapter 4, we see the way in which that kingdom is expressed in verse 23. And Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. God's kingdom is one free of human corruption, one that sees the perfection of God's creation at hand. And so here's the tension point we all feel. The tension point we feel is that life as we know it and Jesus' description and what we see here are not always congruent. They're not always the same. If you remember from Genesis 1, we're told that we are made in the image of God and that we have dominion over creation. This is to say that we all have our own little kingdoms. So part of the tension that exists is that each of us have our own little kingdoms. And oftentimes those things come into conflict with what God's will is. But if I can offer you some hope that as you read through scripture broadly, a theme emerges, an idea that theologians call inaugurated eschatology, or this idea that in the life of Jesus, the kingdom steps into reality, and it is begun in the life of Jesus and will be completed at the end of days. That there is an expression of the goodness, the hope, the creativity, and the love of God in the here and now, and we wait for that to be fully completed. Maybe a more practical example. Let's say we go out to eat at a great new restaurant. Um, if you have any suggestions, you have to throw them. I think that's in the Ten Commandments. Like, you have to tell your pastors about the new restaurants. Uh, we go to this restaurant. We've ordered all of our food. The appetizers have arrived, and we're digging into the appetizers. We finish the appetizers, and now we are in the in-between time. The time between the nachos arriving and your entree arriving. This is the time in which we sit. The appetizer of Jesus has come. Jesus has shown us all that God can do. Jesus has shown us the goodness of the kingdom, but we wait for its full completion. We are in the in-between. And so we hold on to the taste that is the goodness of Jesus, and we wait until that goodness becomes the whole of our life. We exist in this in-between time. We have had a taste of all that God has had to offer, and yet we are still hungry. And Jesus is offering us the invitation to live in the reality of the kingdom, to experience the goodness of his kingdom, and to express that goodness to all people. And this is the theme of chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Jesus says 
this in verse 7. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. This is Jesus' simple invitation to ask anything of God and to experience it. To bring all things to God in prayer, the big, the small, and everything in between, and trust that God will respond. Jesus' evidence for this reality is rooted in the wickedness of humanity, which is not necessarily a comforting thought, but true nonetheless. Jesus says this, Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask? Even the worst of humans have a soft spot for their kids. Even the most crazy psychopath person has a soft spot for their kiddos. Now, there are extreme versions in which that is not the case, but that's not what we're talking about. Jesus roots the goodness of God in an experience we all know, that even the worst of people have a soft spot for their kiddos. How much more so does our God have a soft spot for us? How much more does he have nothing but good intentions for those who are called by his name? This is, is an essential foundation of Jesus' life and ministry. It is that God is a loving Father. And I know that that concept might be painful for some, the idea that God is a loving Father. Because if your father was or is a wicked man, that description doesn't quite fit. If you've experienced abandonment, abuse, absence, or manipulation, that is a tough theology to sell, that our God is a good father. But despite it all, Jesus, this is the center of Jesus' message. And whatever it takes to find healing in that, it is worth the journey because this is the crux of Jesus' message. So whatever it takes, whether it's therapy, whether it's lots of prayer, whether it's working through emotions, whether it's counseling, it is worth the journey of healing those father wounds in our life because it is at the core of Jesus' message. Unless we topple the false images of God that we hold on to, we will never know the joy of coming to him in prayer and of a simple ask. Unless we know the goodness of him, prayer becomes very hard. I think it's also worth noting that he is described as a good father, not as a butler in the sky. Um, that a good father should probably have no in his vocabulary. Uh, a good father knows what is good for you even when you don't know what is good for you. 
And so part of Jesus' invitation into the life of prayer is to ask anything, but know that it is only good that the Father gives. That is to hold on to the humble posture of recognizing that sometimes we ask for the things that are not good for us. Um, We were watching um, this new show on Apple TV called We Crashed. It's all about uh, the WeWork revolution. And there's a line in it in which the entrepreneur who gets uh, or who kind of starts up WeWork He gets a $4 billion investment, and there's this line because at the $4 billion investment, everything goes sideways for this company. And there's a line in it that said him receiving a $4 billion investment was probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to him. What seemed like the thing that would keep them going, the thing that was a gift from the investment gods, was actually the thing that drove them into bankruptcy, the thing that drove everything sideways. And so we recognize that our God has no in his vocabulary, that he is not the great butler in the sky, but he is our good father who gives good things. But the shocking invitation of this passage is that there are no seatbelts to it, which makes me very uncomfortable. Jesus doesn't say, ask for anything but Jesus simply says, ask for anything. And as much as I want to say, but, 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 I don't really want to be the one who disagrees with Jesus. Jesus' simple invitation is to ask God for anything, but to trust that he ultimately knows what's good for us. It is resting in the character and the goodness of God. It's shocking that Jesus doesn't offer any seatbelt to this. He just simply says, ask anything. And the thing I think I take away from this is that Jesus is less worried about our bad requests as much as he is about us not asking. N.T. Wright says it this way, but for most of us, the problem is not that we are too eager to ask for the wrong things. The problem is that we are not eager enough to ask for the right things. Jesus' simple invitation is to come to God the Father and ask anything of him. As Dallas Willard puts it, prayer is this. Prayer is talking to God about the things we are working on together. It is a collaboration with God to accomplish the good purposes of his kingdom. The beauty of this invitation is that it is an invitation to work on things together with our God. That he is inviting us into the process of bringing about good in this world. It is an invitation to prayer. It is an invitation to partnership. It is an invitation to see the kingdom at work in our lives. Put that into context for you. What are the little things, the daily annoyances, the project that continues to be at the forefront of your mind that you just simply haven't gone to God in prayer with? I think oftentimes we kind of go with the posture of, I did my 30 minutes in the morning and that's, that's my prayer time. And I think this is a radical offer to come to God at any moment, at any point, at any time in your day, to say, God, help with this. 
Lord, would you ease the anxiety about that presentation? God, would you help me with that difficult coworker? God, would you just help me get through my inbox? Because sometimes it takes a miracle to get through some of your inboxes. Come to God with as small and as grand a thing as you can. It is an invitation to experience the goodness of God because we are asking for the goodness of God to be present in our everyday life. Jesus' invitation in 7 through 11 is to experience the goodness of the kingdom in our needs and then to reciprocate it in verse 12. Looking at verse 12, the word the English Standard Version translates as so is a transitional conjunction that can mean so, therefore, consequentially, accordingly, or then. This is to say our lives with God are deeply intertwined with our lives with others. That Jesus goes, ask anything, and therefore go do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It is this odd intertwining of prayer and the golden rule. It is this odd mixture in which the way we interact with God is directly corresponding to the way we interact with one another. Even though we have ideas that I can set my theology over here and my relationship with God over here, and I can be petty, manipulative over here, Jesus says those two things are directly correlated. Our lives with God are deeply intertwined with our lives with others. So let's briefly talk about the way we interact with others. You have heard of the golden rule, and in fact, in the time being here, you are probably going to be able to leave with the golden rule memorized. So brownie points for all of you today. The Lord is excited that you have memorized the golden rule. But the golden rule is not the only rule in which society can operate. So here are three rules, including the golden rule, that we can talk through. The first one is the wooden rule. You likely haven't heard of this one. But it is to do unto others what they do to you. Uh, You compliment me. You say, I like your shoes. I say, I like your jacket. You say, that was a great talk. I say, you are a great person. Or someone embarrasses you, so you gossip. Someone takes credit for something you work on together, so you become passive-aggressive. They were short with me, so I'll be petty with them this afternoon. You insult my wife, so I slap you in the face. (laughs) This is the wooden rule, and it is by far the least mature way to go about life. We wouldn't even let our children behave this way, but this is how most people go through life. We all have a few names that as soon as I started ticking through those, you're like, yep, I know that person. This is by far the least emotionally mature way to go about life. What you do to me, I'm going to turn around and do to you. Just check out a comment thread on social media to see if this is still at work. The wooden rule is definitely still at work. Then there is the silver rule. Do not do unto others what you would not have done to you. The way I heard it growing up, if you can't take it, don't dish it. 
I grew up with three younger brothers, and that was my parents' motto. Stop picking on them if you can't take the punch. That is inevitable. It is an ancient proverb, don't do unto others what you would have them not do unto you. It's an ancient proverb that existed long before Jesus. And I actually think most people, most mature adults, practice the silver rule. Resisting the urge to take action that will have a negative effect on them. And don't get me wrong, the silver rule is light years ahead of the wooden rule. It is way better to operate by don't do unto others what you would not have done to you than give what you receive. The silver rule is light years ahead of the wooden rule, but it is still a far cry from Jesus's golden rule. For Jesus's golden rule is whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also unto them. What's interesting is Jesus is riffing off of a common practice. In the first century, it was a well-known practice to go to a Jewish rabbi and say, hey, summarize the entirety of the Torah or the Old Testament to me. There are 613 commandments, laws, or rules in the Old Testament. And so it was a common practice to say, I can't memorize all of them. Can you summarize it for me? In fact, there was this story that I found in uh, going through this that I found uh, really telling. There was this Gentile who comes to Israel, and he goes to the two most well-known rabbis at the time, Rabbi uh, Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, and he says, I will convert to Judaism on the condition that you tell me the entirety of the Torah while I stand on one foot. He says, I will convert to Judaism if you can tell me the entirety of the Torah while I stand on one foot. Rabbi Shammai has this visitor come to him, and he's a little bit more of the conservative of the two. He's very strict about his adherence to the Torah. And as he's getting asked this question, he actually had a builder's ruler in his hand, and he just starts wailing on this man, Will Smith style. And the man runs off, beaten and broken, and the Will Smith jokes will not get old, so sorry. Then this same man goes to Rabbi Hillel and says, if you can tell me the entirety of the Torah while I stand on one foot, I will convert. This is what Rabbi Hillel says. He says, whatever is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole of the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn. If it sounds familiar, it is the silver rule of do not do unto others what you would have them do unto you. This is a rule that functions out of self-preservation, but Jesus's golden rule reverses this. Jesus's golden rule operates out of empathy, not self-preservation. The silver rule is you don't want to receive what harm you do to another, so you do not act. But Jesus's golden rule is a verb. It is about doing. It is about engagement. It is about empathy. The silver rule gives us the freedom to disengage. Jesus's golden rule demands that we engage. Jesus doesn't give us the freedom to stay distant from the challenges and the pain of those around us. 
Jesus' golden rule is to do unto others what you would have them do unto you. It is a summons to move closer to pain. It is a summons to move closer to sin. It's a summons to move closer to injustice. It is a summons to move closer to the brokenness of life and to introduce goodness into evil. It is a summons to do unto others which you would have them do unto you. To practice the golden rule requires that I abandon my privilege, my distance, and my safety in order to be empathetic and in proximity to those in pain around me. This is to say I learn to reach out when someone is grieving. That I don't say, don't let me know what I can do. I just show up with a big old thing of pasta. And I say, I know times are tough, but can I just take care of a meal tonight? This is to know the name and the story of someone in your community and to move close enough to see your own pain in their story, to be empathetic and to demonstrate what can happen when goodness enters a broken situation. Jesus' golden rule is a beckons to empathy and proximity, to refuse to stay on the sidelines, to refuse to stay distant. It is a summons to proximity. According to Jesus, the sum of the law and the prophets is to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The sum of the law and the prophets is to become a person of love, reflecting the love of God for us. In Matthew 22, this is just another way to say everything that Jesus has been saying. In Matthew 22, a lawyer approaches Jesus and asks a question. The lawyer says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. The golden rule is little more than a nuanced way of saying this. And if I'm to read Jesus correctly, and I'm open to disagreements, but if I am reading Jesus' definition of love correctly, it is a summons to put others before yourself. It is a beckons to do what he has done in his life and in his cross. And the strength of Jesus' argument the strength of the Christian faith is that everything Christ asks of us, he first does himself. He first demonstrates, including the golden rule. In the incarnation, in Jesus, we have an example of God intentionally moving towards us in love. In Jesus, God takes on flesh and gets in proximity with our suffering. We serve a God who refuses to re remain remote and distant, but joins us in our pain. He saw suffering from our own perspective because he came amongst us. 
we have a Savior who is able to empathize with our weaknesses. The baffling nature of the gospel is that God invites us into a kingdom in which we get to join him in the process of bringing good to broken places. His invitation in this passage is to taste of the goodness of God. Just ask. Ask for a taste and then to move in order to reveal. Move towards our neighbor so that they too can get a taste of who God is. Worship team, if you would join me. The practice today is a little bit of a twofold. It is this beautiful reminder that God says, ask anything. Ask anything of me in order to experience the goodness of my provision in your needs and that through your deeds, others will come to know me. That God's provision will happen in our needs and that his goodness will be demonstrated through our deeds. It is a summons to talk to God about the things we are working on together. That when you ask, how do I even begin to process the possibility of living out the golden rule? It begins by processing the goodness of God in your own life. Imagine this reality with me that the God of the universe says, ask anything of me. That the God of the universe is attuned to our petty little desires. That he is not too big to hear, God help me clear out my inbox this hour. That he is not too distant in order to say, God, I'm not sure how this bill is going to be paid this month. That he is not too big to hear the nuances of everyday life on this earth. That he says, come and ask. And if we can learn the nature of our God who is bending his ear to hear our every little desire, I think that should humble us in such a way that we are willing to hear the needs and the problems and the difficulties of our neighbor. That when we learn the heartbeat of our God, we learn to respond to the needs of those around us. So here's my invitation to us this week to just throw up a lot of prayers. In every little thing, God help. In every big thing, God help. In every medium thing, God help. You pull into the gas station, God help. You show up to work, God help. And in the practice of coming to God with the posture of, Lord, would you assist me that we would learn to be his ambassadors and his emissaries to those around us. That in learning the goodness of the kingdom of God, that we would learn how to express it to our neighbor. Our invitation this week is to pray a lot, little prayers every hour of every day. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for the word you've given us in Christ, that it was his sermon on the mount that showed us that you say, ask anything of me. 
that there is nothing off limits, but that ultimately you are a good father who knows what is good for us. In discovering that about you, may we learn what it is to be good neighbors. May we learn what it is to put others' needs before our own. May we learn how to live out the golden rule, to do unto others what we would have done unto us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.